All right. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good, good morning. Good morning. Uh, before we get started, before we get started, I'm not sure if you're aware of the fact that we're in an um, election season. Has anyone paid attention to this? Yeah, some of you are super stoked. Some of you are way too stoked. <laughs> um, but one way or the other, um, I have to be completely honest that this season wears me out every four years. Um, there's points where I honestly want to kick the whole thing to the curb and just, <laughs> just go, I, I am like, I am voting, my vote is I am abstaining from the whole crazy mess of the whole thing. And one of the things that, um, that I've always tried to do is to protect the pulpit um, from, from any type of political, uh, you need to vote for this person or whatever, uh, because of the fact that I think that one of the things that we affirm as, as believers is that our ultimate faith isn't in one particular candidate or one particular political party. Um, as a church, I, I love the fact that we come from different backdrops. We have different, um, we have different uh, things that we are, we are invested in. We have different backstories, strengths, weaknesses, and we vote differently. Um, that that this, this congregation is made up of Republicans Democrats and, and people in the Green Party if there is still such a thing. And so the one thing that, that I, I really do think uh, is important for us to do as we're engaging this type of a season as a church and as Christians is to recognize first and foremost that anyone that you vote for on Tuesday or in November will not be the answer. They can't be. And so don't invest in whoever you're voting for this Tuesday or in November, the type of fervor or passion that we would a Messiah, because anyone you do vote for will fail you and the rest of us, um, because they're human. And every governmental system that's ever been set up has had the struggle of trying to get it right and even be biblical and have failed. Um, That said, don't allow that to push you into complacency or apathy, because as Christians, We have the opportunity to recognize that wherever we are, whatever country we are in, we have to be good stewards of what is afforded us. And what's been afforded us in this country is something that other countries, people in other countries would die for to have, the opportunity to have a voice and a vote. Um, And even people in in this country have bled for the opportunity for people of minority status to vote, people, um, women to vote, people of all classes vote. That's been something that has been fought for. And so even though you're never going to find a Bible passage saying, if you don't vote, it's a sin, you're not going to find that. You do see the principle of being a good steward of any opportunity afforded to you. So as you go into Tuesday, and even as you go into November, I want to encourage you as Christians to engage whatever vote you have through the filter of saying, I'm not just a uh, political party hack for this party or this party or this candidate or this candidate. But instead be the type of person that's saying, I'm going to allow uh, who I am and who God is to be the filter I make my decision off of. Knowing this person is not going to perfectly reflect biblical perspectives completely, but that I want my conscience to be clear that this person I'm voting for is is the best choice that I can make to, to accomplish that. Does that make sense? Okay. Speech over. Um... Legacy. We're at the end of a series called On the Brink, where we've been talking about a political leader, David, King David, 
And we've talked about the absolutely odd selection of David being the one that God chose. We've talked about all the big things, the Goliath moments, the the moral failures and all that stuff. And we, we haven't put that out there intentionally. We've intentionally avoided trying to say, David is all that in this area, so we should be like David. Or David is amazing over here, so we should just, we should emulate and model ourselves after that. Instead, the bigger picture is what God is doing underneath the surface in this very imperfect and flawed individual. This imperfect and flawed individual that God ultimately says about him, this is a man after my own heart. In spite of all that stuff, this is a man after my own heart. And so when we're talking about legacy, we get down to the last of his life where it's really him being on the brink of leaving a legacy in his family. If you've got your Bibles or if you've got your Bible on your phone, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. And we'll be there in just a moment. But as you're turning there, you may ask the question, well, hold on a second. I honestly, I know a little bit about David. Why in the world are we studying this guy when it comes to the whole concept of leaving a legacy in your family? Do you know what happened in David's family? Do you remember his kids? His kids were those kids that you talk about with your, with your family. Oh, those kids. Those, that was David's kids and then some. Many in here have come from a really, really bad backdrop as far as your family history and, and, and you could tell stories. Maybe you can relate to David, but most of us couldn't relate to everything within his life. David, this is his legacy. He had a son who sexually assaulted his half-sister. When David finds out about it, scripture records that he's furious, but that he does nothing. Angry, really angry, but he does nothing about it. Scripture records that David had a son who arranged the murder of his half-brother. That happened in his family. Scripture records that part of David's legacy was having... Uh, a more focused, uh, was more focused on keeping kids happy than disciplining him. His disciplining stunk when Adonijah was someone who wanted to take David's throne away from him. He wanted to supersede the throne. It, it records that David, with Adonijah, never did anything to displease him. All he wanted to do was always make this kid happy. Happy all throughout his life. And that, that was the main thing. And you would think that that would have afforded him a son that was loyal to him. But uh-uh, not going to happen. Adonijah tried to take his throne away from him. We see in scripture that David showed favoritism towards one kid over the rest, and that was Absalom. I don't know if in your family that you grew up in, there was one kid that was the favorite. And everyone knew it, even though mom or dad denied it. You knew this one was the favorite. That was Absalom. And again, you would think that that would have earned David some type of loyalty from Absalom. But Absalom turns against David. You see that David also endured the pain of having his son turn against him. Actually, two. If David wrote a parenting book, how-to book, nobody would read it. No one would buy it. This is the most messed up family that that even reality TV couldn't touch. So why in the world, when we come to legacy, are we talking about David? Leaving a legacy in your family. Why would we look at David for any other reason than to just say, don't do what he did? Why would we even talk about him? It's because there was one child... Solomon. See, parents, um, parents make the mistake of uh, thinking that they have nothing to offer their kids or they've done so much wrong that they've completely uh, disqualified themselves from leaving a legacy in their family. But David's legacy to Solomon and to us is to say no. David's final breaths are saying, I have something even now at this point 
in the timeline, even in spite of all of these mistakes that I've already made, in spite of all the missteps with my kids that I've already done, all the missteps I've done with, within all my other relationships, in spite of all that, I still have something to offer. There's still something to bring to the table. And we see that in 1 Kings chapter 2. Take a look, beginning in verse 1. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong. Show yourself a man. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go. The thing that David is conveying in his last breaths with Solomon is this. The thing that I can pass on to you has a lot to do with who God is and who I am and who you are in him. That's the best thing I could give you. And Solomon ends up doing what David could not do in building the temple. That, that, that was Solomon's task. He did amazing things. And scripture doesn't censor out the fact that Solomon, just like his dad, had issues. Issues that David had, Solomon picked up those. The same handicaps, he picked up a lot of them. But the one thing that Solomon also picked up was David's desire and tendency to continue to return to the, the Lord. That's what Solomon did. And you see that all throughout. Now, as, even as I'm bringing up this whole concept of leaving a legacy in family, this might be something that really um, makes some of you feel uncomfortable or bummed out or even think this doesn't have anything to do with me. Some of you may, may feel like, look, I've got, I've got kids and so that, that's pertinent to me. Or some of you might say, but I'm not, I'm not even married. I don't have kids. Or I, I'm a single parent. I'm in a different situation than David was in. Or I'm a grandparent. My kids are gone. This has nothing to do with me. Or, I'm a junior higher. How could I possibly relate to anything here? Which, of course, brings us to Paul Simon. Paul Simon wrote this song called Rewrite. Um, And uh, I remember, it's on a couple albums back. I'm a big Simon and Garfunkel fan, and I love um, Paul Simon's uh, solo work. This is a couple albums back. and And there's this one song on this particular album called Rewrite. And I listened to it. I was listening to the album when I was mowing the lawn. And as I was listening to it, it's just this quirky song. And, it, uh, it's, and honestly, I didn't really like it when I first heard it. Because it's just like, what is the point of this song? This song is, is about this Vietnam veteran writing the story of his life. And he's working on a rewrite in the midst of writing this. Or he's writing the story and he's working on a rewrite. This is how the song begins. I'm working on my rewrite. That's right. Going to change the ending. Throw away the title and toss it in the trash. Every minute after midnight, all the time I'm spending... I'm just working on a rewrite, and I'm going to turn it into cash. I've been working at the car wash. I consider it my day job, because it really isn't a pay job, but that's where I am. Everybody says the old guy working at the car wash hasn't got a brain cell since he left Vietnam. But I say, help me, help me, help me, help me, thank you. I had no idea that you were there when I said, help me, help me, help me, help me, thank you for listening to my prayer. And again, I'm listening to this over and over again. The song's quirky. Benji's going to play it when you exit the room so you can hear how quirky this song is. And so I'm just like, I'm ready to advance to the next track because I'm getting bored. And then all of a sudden, Paul Simon destroys me. And I have to stop mowing. Because that's the point where I realized that the Vietnam veteran working at the car wash writing this story, he's writing his own story. 
dreaming of the opportunity to rewrite his own story if only he could. And that's what you realize that when it gets to the bridge. And this is what it's the bridge says. I'll eliminate the pages where the father has a breakdown. And he has to leave the family, but he really meant no harm. I'm going to substitute a car chase and race across the rooftops where the father saves the children and he holds them in his arms. And I release the lawnmower gas lover and I just start to cry. And every time I hear that song and it gets to that part, I start to cry because I've sat in my office and I've had conversations with friends so many times where the one thing they wish they could do is have a rewrite. The one thing they wish they could do is go back to the most painful aspects of their parenting as a father or as a mother and undo what they've done. To re-say things that they said in anger. To unsee what their children have seen. And the sad aspect of the whole song is that that's not possible. And so when we think about legacy, the thing that keeps us paralyzed is thinking there is no hope. But see, that's where we have something radically different in who we are in Christ. Because the only way for a legacy, the only hope for a legacy, in spite of the fact that we are flawed people, is through the gospel. The fact that that God has done that in you and in me. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the gospel, which means this. God took the distance and wrath we deserve upon himself and through Jesus' death and resurrection has restored us to newness, enabling us to join him in his work of renewing all things. That, that I didn't deserve it, that he came in and he started something in me that said, yep, he's beyond hope, but, but God spoke in and he had a better word. That, that this guy had done all this, no hiding it. And yet there's not a period at the end of the sentence because God has stepped in and now there's hope. And so when we think about legacy, we're not thinking about people in this church or any other church who've done impeccable jobs as parents, who've never made a mistake, or who come from a line of wonderful parents who've never made mistakes. The reality of the gospel steps into and speaks into the fact that we have. But because of Christ, we can stop right here and we can alter the course and say, because of the gospel, there is hope. And I believe, I believe with all my heart, that the gospel can change your family. If you're a kid in here and you're like, man, this is going to be the most boring service. He's talking to my parents. This message is for you because one day you may have children. Additionally, this may help you understand how to respond to your parents who are trying this. If you're a grandparent, you're like, well, I don't have any, my, my time has come and gone. No, this is for you as well. This is specific to parents with kids right now. But because all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness, this stuff helps us understand who God is, especially relating how the gospel impacts us. And it starts with us showing, very much like David showed with his child, showing something, showing an aspect of who God is. And what we need to show, if you have kids at home, we need to show them truth and grace. If we think generationally, there's cultures and generations who've rocked on the truth side. Like, they're the type of people who are like, here's the truth. And maybe this was you, or maybe this was your parents. They were just like, there was no love. It was just like, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. That's what I'm saying. Do it, or you know there's consequences. Boom, boom, boom. That's the heavy truth side. But the grace side wasn't there. And you didn't realize until later on in life that, man, my dad was so loud and so bombastic and even judgmental because he loved me. But I just didn't see it. 
A lot of people today, we have, we have another problem as parents is we're, we're rocking the grace side, but we're really shy on the truth side. We have this concept of friending our kids to the point where we don't want them to be upset with us. And so we try to do our best job just to keep things calm, reduplicating the mistake of David with Adonijah. It messes kids up. In parenting, we need both truth and grace. I put this in your notes. Because godly discipline teaches our child both our tendency to break God's law, this was wrong and there's consequences, and grace-filled response to the wrong. I will never, ever stop loving you. This doesn't change that. I will never, ever stop loving you. This is us as parents making hard and unpopular decisions with kids. And kids, if you're in here, if your parents are making decisions you hate, join the club. We all hated parental decisions. If you feel like your parents are overbearing and taking away your rights, join the club. We've all felt that. I hated that. And I hate doing that. But with my kids and and with our kids as, as people are following God, we need to be the type of people who are caring enough about them that we're giving them both truth and grace. Solomon picked up on this because look what he wrote. He, when he, look what he wrote to his own kid. My child, do not despise discipline from the Lord and do not loathe his rebuke. For the Lord disciplines those he loves just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. The book of Hebrews says that if you're someone who's never been disciplined by a parent, your parent doesn't care about you enough. As parents, we need to have that type of care where we're actually pouring in the, the amount of love that our kids need. My, my dad, both my mom and dad didn't have a very good roadmap given to them by their parents. It just wasn't there. But one thing that my dad, my dad probably read this somewhere, but the one thing that he really tried to do was, was create roots and wings. That was, I hated him saying this over here, roots and wings, you know? And what it basically meant was this. As you're young, we're pouring in the roots. That means that you don't have liberties. You don't have freedoms. We are your boss, and, and you're rooted, and it stinks, and you hate it. You want to rebel against it, but we're still here putting on the roots. And over time, what ends up happening is that as you show yourself able to handle freedoms, we start to remove one root at a time and give you more and more liberty because now you can handle it. Because you've had the years of being rooted, of us shutting down your, your awesome ideas that would kill you. We've given you all these years of roots so that by, the goal is, the trajectory is that by the time you're 18 and you're leaving the house, you will be able to fly away and be able to handle that amount of liberty rather than being rooted the entire time, overbearing parents the entire time, and then you have no idea how to handle liberty or having liberty the whole time and not having any clue how to manage your life. Roots and wings. We need to be the type of people showing truth and grace. We also need to be the type of people that are showing our kids what real FaceTime looks like. Uh, the, the truth is, is that if you are a parent, um, you need to realize that, that our, the amount of eye contact and, and FaceTime we actually invest in our families and our kids, whether you're a single parent or you're, you're in an intact family, is imperative. This is because the incarnation, in the midst of everything else, the incarnation teaches us that God became man and made his dwelling amongst us. It also teaches us that God values the physical interaction rather than impersonal contact. Look what John 1.14 says. John 1.14 says the word, talking about Jesus. Like he didn't just give words. He became the message. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and what? Truth. He could have just messaged it. He didn't. He has a face-to-face contact. The reason that we need to invest in our kids with face-to-face contact is because we are recipients of the incarnation. 
Jesus, God became man. And that's, that's so massively important. The thing that will kill this, if you're a parent today, is this. I talked with someone earlier this week. I was having lunch with them, and they said there's a recent re- uh, report out that said that parents today have an average, an average of four seconds of eye contact with their children per day. Four seconds of eye contact. That doesn't mean you're not in the same room. You could be in the same room forever, but you're like this. Four seconds of eye contact. To which I was like offended. I'm like, man, parents are screwed up today. And then I got thinking. And I asked myself the question, if I added up all of the minutes when I'm at home that I'm looking at this, and all the minutes or seconds that I'm looking at my four kids eye to eye, which wins? And that's damning. That's, that's incredibly convicting to me. Because that's so important for us to have that. For my kids to see that. As one person put it, I don't want my kids' lasting memory of me to be a square glowing orb in front of my face. If they painted a picture of our family life, that's not what I want to be in the portrait. Um, I want to challenge you to make sure that, and, and, and my, my son Cohen is the one who calls me out on this mostly. Uh, we, were, uh, we built a fort in the basement of like sheets and mattresses and stuff, and we're inside and all of a sudden, bzz, my phone goes off, and so of course, I mean, you got to take it because I'm sure it's an emergency. Because <laughs> somebody on Facebook liked a picture. And and I pull it out, and I pull it out, and Cohen, my five-year-old, said, Dad, no phones in the fort. Figure out some no phones in the fort rules for your own family since you have that ability. And maybe perhaps one of the most important aspects of that would be at dinner time. Who would you have dinner with if you could have dinner with anybody? Take a look at this video. If you could have dinner with anyone, living or dead, who would you choose? Kylie Minogue. Oh. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. Oh, God, I wouldn't have a clue. I oh, know, straight up. Yeah. Paul Hogan. Kim Kardashian. No, no, no. I'd like to have dinner with Justin Bieber. What? <laughs> He's not coming to my house. So, um... <laughs> I'd have Bob Hawke. Dave Hughes. Barry Humphreys. Jimi Hendrix. People who have made a difference in the world, maybe Nelson Mandela at the dinner table. I don't know what he's going to say, I'm scared. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world, who would you choose? Probably a whole family, like a whole extended family. Mum and Dad. Mum and Dad. Does it have to be a celebrity? Could it be family? We love it. We talk about how school is. We ask mum and dad how their day was. Family. Yeah, mum and dad. Family! Who would I like to have dinner with? They just want to be with us Mm. while they're eating food, which is pretty cool. They see us above everything. I'm going to get them. Yeah. Yeah. Bit, bit of a message in it for me. Yeah. <laughs> what are we having for dinner? Now I know that all of our lives are crazy, and some of your work schedules are just 
prohibitive of consistency. But even just looking across the audience, as many people who are wiping their face, you know that this is something that we struggle with. What if we reinserted value into the fact that we're sitting down, even when we disagree about stuff, even when we're talking about ridiculously shallow things, that we have that face time with one another? And that you do. You take, take this guy, and you leave him someplace else, and you don't have him in your pocket. Because if it goes off in your pocket, you will know that it is an emergency, and you need to pick it up because somebody liked a picture on Facebook. And everyone at the table will see, yep, that's who's important in this family. Let us be the type of people who are showing them the quality of FaceTime. Let's also show them what repentance looks like. Our kids all know what it means that they have to apologize for things that they've done wrong. What our kids don't know is what it looks like when an adult dad or mom apologize. They don't see that as much. And yet that is what God has called us to. Again, Solomon, David's son, got it right when he was talking to his kid. And he says this, people who conceal their sins will not prosper But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. One of the best ways that you can hand down a legacy to your kids, even if your kids are out of the house and you're doing this now, is to apologize to them. To say, I was wrong and I am sorry. My dad had never saw this from his father. His dad was not a believer. My grandpa was not a recipient of God's grace. He wasn't. But my dad was. And so I remember my dad exploding, being totally angry. I remember my dad chucking something across the room at me, but he missed me because I'm a ninja. (laughs) But I also remember my dad apologizing to me. I remember the sound of what his voice sounded like when he said, son, I was wrong. That's not the way that God called me to be as a dad, and I did it anyway, and I'm sorry. With me, because my dad gave me that legacy, I find it easier to do that than he probably did. With my kids, I I sometimes am overbearing and I blow up and I get angry or I'm I'm too constrictive about certain things. I make mistakes. With my son, Carson, I am the most, um, I'm probably on his case the most, maybe a little bit with Micah, but on, on Carson's case the most about getting moving in the morning, just Get moving, Carson. You got to get moving. You can't just sit here. The bus is coming. You got to move, not slow motion move. This, you've lost the ability to move slow motion. That was 20 minutes ago. Right now, it's fast motion. Like, no, come on. Seriously, man. You got I am not driving you to school. I will not do that again. No, you need, you need to make your lunch. Make the lunch. Make a lunch. Come on. You got to do this because if you're in a crazy hurry, you're going to forget your lunch. Then we're going to have to walk into the office again. And everybody knows us because we're there all the time. Come on. You got to move. And Carson just looks at me. He's like, Dad, I'm fine. Finally, he gets on the bus and I'm exhausted. I sit down. I have coffee. I'm watching the news, reading a magazine. I'm like, oh. And then Julia's like, um. Harold, you, you gotta go. You gotta go. Like, now. Like, you gotta get going to school. You're gonna be late. I'm like, Julie, I'm fine. <laughs> the reason I'm so hard on Carson is I see in him me, and it terrifies me, and I don't want him to be handicapped like that. So later on that night, I go up to Carson. I said, Carson, I need, to, I need to apologize to you. I've been on your case about being on time so much, and yet I myself procrastinate just as much as you do. And that is the 
so hypocritical of me. I'm the biggest hypocrite when I'm doing that. And I'm sorry. And Carson looks back at me and says, okay, and walks away. (laughs) But I tell you what, I believe in his 60s, he will remember that conversation. And so will your kids. Show them what repentance looks like. Not only repentance, but also recovery. See, our kids, our kids need to see, put this in your notes, our kids need to see us fall short, experience restoration, and then watch us following hard after God again. I talk to so many people in my office or just as friends who have hit some point of failure, like in their marriage, they've hit some point of failure in their family, and they've... And, and they think that I, I've, I've soiled my ability to parent. I've ruined it. I've, my kids will never be able to forgive me. My wife will never be able to forgive me. My spouse, whatever. And, and I've, I've ruined it. I might as well just like give up because I'm a, I'm, I'm a screw up. And the truth is, yeah, yeah, that was a screw up. You messed up royally. There's no hiding that. When that took place, everyone saw it. It's not like we could pretend like it didn't happen. But you have to realize that your kids are developing a toolbox And this toolbox is going to be the thing that's going to help them navigate adulthood. And this toolbox surely has got stuff in it that you've done right, that they're going to emulate, and that's great. But guess what? This toolbox also includes what you've done wrong. And that could be an incredibly huge, awesome, fantastic, wonderful thing that you can give them. See, one of the things that we need to realize is that when we hit a point of failure, we were doing a project in the house and it failed. We got fired from our job for something we did. We got a speeding ticket. We have some type of failure. All of a sudden, our kids, we're now like, oh, my kid's going to see me as a failure. How can they possibly respect me? They've seen this massive thing. You know what? Now your kids have an opportunity to see what does it look like for a godly man or a godly woman to fail and recover from it and follow hard after God. What does that look like? Because you know what? If you show them that, one day your kid is going to fail. And if they never watched you go through that, they have no roadmap for how to navigate that. But they did. They saw it. And they've also watched what it looks like for a godly man or a godly woman to recover from it, to trust even that failure to God. And when they fail, they will be able to see that. You might be the type of person who, um, in your parenting, you've done something or, or the fact that I, I, I'm a single parent and I wish that my kids had, had both parents, but they don't. Or I wish that my kids, I'm the only, I'm the one who's the believer in the relationship and my, my spouse is not. And my kids are handicapped by that. I just feel like ter- I've given them such a terrible legacy. You know what? Let your ki- you, even if you wouldn't wish that upon your kids, and you wouldn't, show your kids what it looks like for this single parent who's following God alone. Show them what it looks like because one day they're going to be following God in a context where they are all alone in their workplace, perhaps even in their family, and you could show them exactly what that looks like. Uh, uh, A guy in his 20s that grew up at NBC, um, his dad is not a believer, his mom is, and he said, you want to know what showed me how to be the spouse, uh, godly spouse? It wasn't my dad, it was my mom. My mom did her best to be a godly spouse in spite of the fact that my dad rejected Christ. And still rejects Christ. But it was my mom's encouragement that has led me to be the man, the husband I am today. And for you, another reality might just be the fact that one of the greatest, and I think this is one of the greatest tools that you could possibly give somebody, is is breaking the cycle. 
I, son, daughter, you know that I struggle with alcoholism. You know that I struggle with gambling. You know that I struggle with my rage. You know that I struggle with whatever it is. Or you know that grandpa is like this, and you see how I have picked up the baton from where he was and did the same junk, the same toxicity is living in me that was in grandpa. But I'm giving to you not a perfect record, because I don't have it. You know that I don't have it. I'm giving you to you a picture of what it looks like to break the cycle, because this stops with me. This stops with me. I'm not giving you a perfect record. I'm giving you what it looks like to recover and follow hard after God because one day you're going to struggle with something. You're going to have an addiction that's above and beyond your ability to stop it and you're going to remember that in Christ, dad broke the chain. Mom broke the chain and so can I. Fill your children's, the toolbox of their life, not only with the great things that you've done but also with the failures where they get a chance to see what does it look like to recover from those things and see God in them. Also, we need to show kids what church looks like because kids grow up with a perspective of, on church like, okay, this is the place mom and dad are forcing us to go that we hate. And, and if you were completely honest with your kids, you could say, you know what, there are a lot of better things to do today than show up and sit down and listen to someone, blah, 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 blah. Cinemark is open at this point. We could go right down there. We could watch a movie. You know, on a better day, we could go to Starved Rock. And we could enjoy Utica. Utica? We could go on over to Oglesby afterwards to the root beer stand and have, like, freshly brewed root beer. Like, as a family, this would be amazing. Why are we going to church? And your kids might be like, why do we got to go all the time? It's just like, why? And you're sitting there driving like, I have no idea. Show your kids what church is like. Show them that it's not this religious gold star that you're trying to be impressive to other people or some club of acceptance, but that the reason that you show up here, show them faithfulness, the reason that you're here every week, because your kids are like, we could totally phone this in every week except for two weeks of the year. Come on. That's the national average. Why don't we do that? And you could say, no, the reason we go every time is not because we're better than other people, better than our neighbors. The reason we go every time is because we recognize that we're broken and we need Jesus. And we're around a bunch of other people that are broken and need Jesus. And we get a chance to be around them. We get a chance to worship Jesus with them. And yes, it's a pain to get into the minivan and drive over here. And it's a pain to eat. And it's like, why? This is like a day off. Why aren't we doing this? We get in the worst arguments on the way to church. We know that. But we know that it's worth it. And you know that we're not just at church. We're like, we're getting in small groups. And we have to get a babysitter for you guys. It's not because we don't love you. We love you. We'd love to spend tons of time with you. But we know that we can't do it alone. We know that we have got questions about being a parent, about how to survive this. We need people to pray for us. We don't get that when we're sitting in in a row. We get that when we're sitting in someone's living room. And yeah, we give. And and I know that we give and we tithe. And you're like, why are you doing that? You're always telling me we can't go to Toys R Us because we can't afford what I want. And that's true. We can't afford what you want because you want everything. But the reason that we give, even when we're, when we're tight, is because we're giving to something greater than ourselves. We're, 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 actually, we're actually participating in something that has a global impact. And I want you to see that. I want you to know about that. I want you to know that mom and I, I do that. Not because we're better or because we're rich, but because we love Jesus and we love what he's doing in this world. Show them what church is like. And, and show them what it looks like when you get really offended by the pastor. Or really, really offended by someone within church, show them that as miffed as you are and as ticked off as you are, and legitimately so sometimes, that you treat this place like a family and you forgive. They see that one day when 
they're disappointed by a church, frustrated by leadership, gossiped about by someone, they've got the tools and, the, and what can equip them to actually navigate those waters as well. If you have kids in the house, the clock is ticking. One time, Micah was um, going downstairs to play PS4, and before going downstairs, I stopped him, and I said, Micah, he, Mom and I were just talking, and we've got three years with you. Three years before you're an adult and you move out. That freaks me out. I mean, because many of you saw Micah. He was like this big when he grew up. I mean, he's grown up at this church, and now he's like this big. And so I told Micah, I said, Micah, I, I, you know, I mean, we've got three years with you. And Micah looked at me, he's like, I know, make it count. (laughs) We need to. But if you did every single thing that I listed and more, if you were the perfect Christian parent, your kids still may spend their adult years in complete rebellion to Jesus. If you did everything right as a parent, express the gospel perfectly, your kids may still make self-destructive decisions for the whole of their adult years. Because there's no silver bullet or insurance policy on your kids following Jesus. I've got four kids, and I don't know what's going to happen with them. I don't. I know that the odds are against me that I'll have four kids who have marriages that stay intact to marry godly women. The odds are against me that I'll have four children that follow Jesus with all of their heart into adult years. I that's just reality. And so what I'm forced to do is not rely on my ability to perfectly express the gospel, but I, I'm relying on someone who can do something. I spend my life praying for them. And I want to challenge you to pray for your kids. Pray for the kids that are in your house. Pray for the kids that um, have left your house, they've moved on. And pray for your kids' kids if you're a grandparent. One of the best ways you can leave a legacy in spite of the missteps of the past, is to bring your kids before God. In my bathroom, um, because I'm a forgetful person and I will not constantly remember to pray for my family, I've got post-it notes on my mirror that say, Julie, Micah, Carson, Rylan, and Cohen. So that every day when I'm brushing my teeth, I can, I can pray for them. I can bring them before the Heavenly Father. I know that he has made zero mistakes as a father, and he loves my kids more than I could ever possibly love them. Best legacy I can leave my kids is that. Amen? Amen. Let us do so, and let's watch what God does as a result. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, I just pray simply a blessing over this crowd. Wherever they're at in parenting, if they're uh, someone who doesn't have kids, if they're a kid themselves, if, uh, if they've got kids at home or kids have already left the house, Lord, I pray that you equip them with the ability to know that you are a perfect, perfect, perfect parent. You are a perfect father. You're the most nurturing person we could ever come in contact with. And Lord, I pray that we reflect what you've done in our life to those that you've entrusted to us, our kids. And God, when we see the results throughout this life, we'll give you the thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. amen, amen.